Hello and welcome to another edition of the BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Oliver Gell Grant and I'm joined today by Professor Joel Paris, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University. And we're going to be discussing his recent article in BJ Psych Advances, Dissociative Identity Disorder, Validity and Use in the Criminal Justice System. Joel, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Not at all. So we're talking today about your article that focuses on dissociative identity disorder, uh, which is a diagnosis that I suppose may not be familiar to all psychiatrists. That's even more true on your side of the Atlantic than ours, yes. I think so. I, I, I personally have, have well, seen one case in my career, seen one person who had this diagnosis in my career, uh, which I think is probably fairly representative of the level of experience that most people have. I think I've only, I think I've never seen a case, but then I'm, I'm of course, a doubter. Yes. And that's part of the theme of the article is about, I suppose, the validity of this diagnosis, specifically with use in the criminal justice system. So just tell us, what are the doubts about the validity of this diagnosis that have sort of led you to write this article? Dissociation is a symptom that we see in many mental disorders. So that's not in, in question. And there are certain conditions, very rare ones, which are marked by dissociation as the primary symptom. There's a depersonalization disorder. If, if you don't have any other mental disorder, I think I've seen one case like that in 50 years. So there are some rare cases where dissociation is by itself, it's usually a symptom of something else. Dissociative identity disorder has a history where it used to be called multiple personality disorder. And they changed the name, I think, in order to defend themselves against some of the criticisms about the concept of multiple personality, but it's essentially the same thing. And so these cases were extremely rare. There was one written up at the beginning of the 20th century in a book. There was another book, which I remember when I was young, which was called The Three Faces of Eve and became a movie. And then there was the book Sybil, which had a, a much more powerful influence on the public and maybe on a few psychiatrists. Most psychiatrists never make this diagnosis, but there's a minority group who are sort of activists about it and feel that it's being missed. Whereas people like me feel that it's a, a fabrication which is, which is created by therapists who have patients who are highly liable to suggestion. So that's the dispute. So there is a research literature on dissociative identity disorder from the mavens who support the idea but, eat, but this research literature is limited by the fact that they are making the diagnoses and other people might not agree with them. So it's hard to know exactly what is the prevalence of this disorder or whether it could be explained in other ways. And so a number of psychiatrists have, leading psychiatrists have criticized this idea, most particularly Paul McHugh at Johns Hopkins, who's quite well known in North America. Whereas this, there is still a group of, of psychiatrists who make the diagnosis and make it often. And so uh, this then brings us to the question of the criminal justice system. How did it get in the criminal justice system? Like many other not guilty by reason of insanity defenses, it's based on the idea that if you have a, 
that this diagnosis could be used as a defense because it explains just as somebody who's under the influence of delusion is not held guilty uh, since the McNaughton rule in the 19th century. Similarly, the idea that one of the personalities might take over and commit a crime and, and people should not not considered not guilty by reason of insanity. These, but these kinds of defenses are usually used when the person is clearly guilty, has has no def other defense, and this is an attempt to to introduce it as one. So this I call problematic forensic implication because of its dubious mm. the dubious validity of the disorder itself. This is uh, in the criminal justice system. It's quite a rare occurrence, uh, as far as I could tell, that this is taken as a defense. Is is that right? It is quite rare. And in my article, I was helped by a, a lawyer who uh, your journal uh, referred me to. And if, in fact, there were really weren't that many cases. We were able to make a complete list of them in the article. So it's a very rare defense. Hmm. I suppose something that people will find controversial in this article is uh, this idea that dissociative identity disorder comes about as an artifact of therapy. So can you tell us a bit more about that theory? Well, again, I can't quote you systematic research because there's very little. Most of the information is multiple anecdotes and clinical impressions. Nevertheless, um, if you consider the case of Sybil, the most famous case in recent uh, decades, uh, she never had these symptoms until she saw a certain psychiatrist who promoted them. And she got very involved, over-involved with the psychiatrist. They were going to write a book together. The book was going to make a lot of money, which it did. And, uh, Famously, Herbert Spiegel, who is actually the father of David, was the father of David Spiegel, who was one of the promoters of, the, of dissociative identity disorder he, in California. Herbert Spiegel used to see this patient when the regular therapist was on vacation, and she would say to the Herbert Spiegel, do you want me to talk about my personalities? That's that's what my regular therapist does. But if you don't want to hear about it, I don't need to do it for you. So this is the concept which has been applied to hypnosis also, and which is sometimes used to elicit these personalities. The, co the concept is the patients want to please their therapist, and the therapist insists on a certain interpretation of their psychopathology. They may accept it simply because they, they're in a situation where they're seeking help. The problem is that these often leads to very extended therapies. In the U.S., some of these patients were even admitted to hospitals for several years. Uh, there was a famous case in Chicago where this that led later on to a lawsuit and, and a psychiatrist losing his license. So I think the question is, who has the burden of proof? Famously, it's been said that incredible claims require incredible level, levels of evidence. And so I think because so much of this, of the phenomena that are described in the DID literature is bizarre and peculiar, and often what happens is the patients start with two or three personalities and can end up with 20 or more. 
There could be a, an animal inside. There could be a, uh, a child. All kinds of, of bizarre things. I think the burden of proof lies on those who consider this to be valid. Now, I sort of compare it to the story of Shahrazad, who, who managed to, to get the Sultan not to kill her by telling such interesting stories. And some patients can tell her, can make up lots of interesting stories. And, I, and not everybody would be susceptible to this. We have one person in my city who does this kind of work. And when I see patients who've seen him, they say, well, he tried to convince me I had DID, but I wasn't playing. So there are certain types of patients who may be attracted to this. But in terms of proving the invalidity of a disorder, you'd have to have much more systematic research. And that's really not out there, even though you know there are dissociation journals. The, the other thing which is dubious is the idea that this happens due to trauma. So for and off sexual trauma or physical trauma during childhood, which has been a very popular but controversial explanation for many mental illnesses over the last number of decades. There's a book by Deborah Nathan about Sybil, who is who has a real name. And she went back and went to her hometown and visited people who knew her and and got a story. In fact, uh, in spite of the horrific tales of abuse that she told in her therapy, in which you'll find in the book, there's no evidence any of this ever happened. Now, again, each of these each of these stories is anecdotal, but then the evidence for the idea is also anecdotal. So I can't defend this on a purely research basis because the research isn't there. I can only say, as far as I can tell, most psychiatrists don't believe in this stuff and never see these cases. <laughs> I suppose some of the uh, criticisms that you make of DID could be leveled at other psychiatric disorders. So there is nothing, I suppose, unique about the idea of having a diagnosis that is only made by a, a small minority of psychiatrists. I, I'm not sure in Canada, but certainly in the UK, there is many specialist services who are almost the unique uh, gatekeepers, if you like, of specific diagnoses. You know, for example, uh, autism or anorexia, which are not rare diagnoses. These are exclusively made in specialist services. So I, I suppose the idea of having a diagnosis that is only made by experts is not so unique, maybe, to DID. It is not. I've written a book about overdiagnosis in psychiatry, which recently came out in a second edition. And many diagnoses, and di are, if, not, if not most diagnoses of psychiatry, are problematical because because they are not like medical diagnoses based on biological markers. They're based on signs and symptoms and clinical observation. So for example, major depression, which is one of the most common diagnoses that we make, is actually fairly problematic in a number of ways. Uh, autism, which is, used to be very rare, is suddenly becoming very frequent because people are defining other conditions as autism. And there's no way of telling where the boundary lies. Attention deficit disorder is gone from a not so common disorder to 20% of, of children who seem to have it in some settings. So 
many diagnoses of psychiatry are lacking validity. It's the best we can do now at our present state of knowledge. But that also leaves things open for people who want to create diagnoses. I think what's happened with DID is they, they have a group which is interested in it. And they were, for example, Spiegel from, from California has, was chairman of the committee which, which determined how these diagnoses would be described in the American DSM manual. Now, you tell me if that answers your question. Mm. I mean, certainly it, it is a complexity, as you say, in many diagnoses, uh, this issue of, of validity. I suppose something else that's interesting in your article about uh, DID has been the, the epidemiological patterns over time. So you touch on this uh, book and movie, Sybil, that I think came out, is, was it in the 1970s or slightly yes. earlier? And yes, following that, there's a rise in case numbers. Yeah. Well, I remember it was serialized in our local, local newspaper, and I remember reading it at the time and saying, too bad I never see cases like this. My, my clinical population seems to be boring by comparison. Uh, it, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't even occur to me at the time that it was a fraud, but it was a fraud. It was a very uh, effective fraud. So I, I, think, I think the media is an example in which, in which the media and a small group of, act, if you like, activist clinicians can create a diagnosis. Hmm. I, I, I suppose a, a critic of that view would say, is the fact that uh, the cultural milieu promotes a certain diagnosis. Does, is, is, does that in itself make the diagnosis invalid? I suppose coming back again to the, the parallel example of, of anorexia, anorexia rates, of course, have increased rapidly in the last few decades and have increased in certain countries and certain settings, along with a rise in media portrayals of you know, very thin bodies or of ideal body images that were not there previously. I suppose, would you consider that to be an equally invalid diagnosis, therefore, or is there something different about DID? Well, anorexia is totally valid, and its increase is, is completely, completely well documented. And, you know, the media influence did have an effect, and that doesn't make it in any way invalid. It only indicates there's a kind of a cultural spread of certain types of symptoms, and this is related to sociological phenomena. So anorexia is a, re, a real and actually life-threatening illness. So I, uh, the difference with DID is that anorexia is not created by therapists. Anorexia, in fact, anorexic patients only come to us after having been, having lost so much weight that their life is in, is in danger. And they often resist going therapy and they live a kind of an, in a kind of anorexic world where everything depends on whether they eat or they don't eat. I'm sure you're familiar with this if you've treated anorexic patients. DID only exists when therapists are involved and stimulate patients to, to create alters or, or alternate personalities. It only happens in therapy. People don't arrive. And this is why, I, I mean, I've seen 50,000 cases over, over my career because I do a lot of consultative work. And this is why probably I've never seen a case because although I've seen people once in a while who have personality disorders and are called DID by somebody else, but the therapist pl plays the major role in initiating 
the, the, the symptoms that are described in the definition of, of the condition, and therefore it's completely different from anorexia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, I noticed in your article, one thing that you're talking about is uh, that the levels of DID are in decline. Is that the case, that the instance of new diagnoses is going down? Is, is that known in various parts of the world? I don't have the I don't have the data to prove it. It's an impression that I have from talking to colleagues and clinicians around the world and people who've written about the subject and you know, there's been a lot of critiques. But but the, ep the epidemiological studies of this condition, there are there are a couple of them, but they're all over the place. Some people say 0.01%. I mean, some people say zero, some people say 0.01%, and some say 1%, and some say five, even 5% or more. And, that, and we're missing all these cases. This is incredible because schizophrenia, which is a big problem for, for psychiatry, is 0.7%. And even major depression, well, major depression lifetime is extremely common, but in a, in, in, if you look at a one-year prevalence, it's much lower than that. So what, what you'd be saying is, here's this condition which has as high a prevalence as any other mental disorder, is being missed by almost every psychiatrist except the ones who believe in it. I mean, where is the burden of proof in this situation? Hmm. What advice would you give, I mean, if any, uh, to a psychiatrist who meets a patient in his clinic who's previously received a, a DID diagnosis? It's very difficult. Uh, I've been in that situation a few times because some of these patients do have borderline personality disorder, which happens to be my specialty in psychiatry. And so I've seen a couple of people who've been through that. And the advice, you're asking what advice I would give to the patient or to the psychiatrist? Uh, to, to the psychiatrist who sees them. Well, I. There aren't that many people in my country who do that kind of thing and, and create multiple personalities. The only thing I could, could do with that kind of situation is not to send anybody ever to that psychiatrist. The, if you see a patient who's been through that, some of them are, are willing to work with the other things which might be responsible for their symptoms. Because the problem with DID is that it, like so many dubious diagnoses, it tries to explain everything. And usually, again, going back to trauma histories, which is another controversial area. But I think patients might, if they come my way, and they're not captured by this, by the, by the, by the narrative, sometimes you, I could work with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose that, uh, based on this idea that uh, DID diagnosis is a, you know, almost an iatrogenic thing, I suppose it is reasonable to assume that this diagnosis must be fairly well confined to uh, individuals and parts of the world where long courses of individual therapy are, are available. That's a good point. In fact, long courses of individual therapy are not readily available e even in uh, advanced advanced to uh, developed countries by and large. It is available to a certain extent, but most people get brief therapy. And the extended courses of therapy are 
often not insured. That's certainly the true in the United States. In the National Health Service, I doubt that this would be a priority in a time when, when CBT is just being brought in you know, to the system. Yes, it's true. There's certainly not a lot of, uh, you know, long, long form individual therapy going on in the NHS at the moment. Yes. So I, I, I suppose the final point that I uh, uh, that I wanted to touch on is this idea as to how the DID diagnosis has persisted in diagnostic manuals for so long, because it has been included in multiple revisions of DSM, hasn't it? Well, it's, it's a tragedy, I would say, uh, it's, but it's political, it's politically based because if you have one person who is considered the expert in the area, and that's again, Dr. Spiegel, and that, and that person is, is volunteering to do the revision each time. And if nobody sees these cases, it's not a priority for the DSM uh, committees. The DSM committees are con are concerned about the boundaries of the disorders that, the, that psychiatrists see frequently. So people interested in the rare disorders have a kind of a niche open for them that way. Even worse, if you, textbooks which are based on the DSM system, as many of them are, it's certainly in, in, in North America, there has to be a chapter on dissociative disorders. So who do they ask to write the dissociative disorders chapter? Dr. Spiegel or one of his people. And so it's out there in the textbooks because it's a separate chapter of the manual. I'm hoping that the FSM 6 will, will change this. But you know, again, when you're talking about politics, you often are talking about the influence of a few people who oppress who their case most vigorously and don't have serious opposition. Well, Joel, Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I'm sure that will be fascinating to lots of our readers. Uh, that was Professor Joel Paris, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University. And we've been discussing his new article, Dissociative Identity Disorder, Validity and Use in the Criminal Justice System, which is published in BJ Psych Advances. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.